0: Peter chapter one. We began looking at this letter last week. We've seen that it's probably Peter's second letter to the same folks he wrote to in first Peter, but we don't know for sure. It has a real Greek overtone to it. We'll maybe touch on some things about that this morning. And he's addressing some false teaching that's taking place in this church. And we've seen that false teaching is something that arises with every generation. In every nation and culture where the church is, you must always be on your guard about what the truth is, how to detect a counterfeit or a lie, and uh, Peter was really doing that big time uh, in this letter. And we're going to see how dangerous that false teaching is, at least the one that he's dealing with, and we'll look at some of the solutions. He anticipates his whole theme in his introduction, as we saw last week and even more so today, but let's look at verses 3 and 4 as we pick up just these two verses today and seek to understand them. Now, what what we're going to have is you'll, you'll see how in the NIV, on page 2026 in the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, uh, you'll see that in verses 3 through 11, the NIV lumps these together saying, making one's calling and election sure. Okay, that's fair enough. At least that picks up the, the theme in the last two verses. But I would just temp, uh, t- uh, tend to say this is... God's explanation of our salvation. And we're going to notice in verses 3 and 4, what he's going to describe is what God has done for us. And then in verses 5 through 9 in particular, we're going to see what, or 5 through 10, we're going to see what what our response is to be. And so our salvation is made up, first of all, of God's grace toward us, what He's done for us, and then how we're responding to Him in discipleship. And it consists of both. And we must be students and uh, we must be obedient servants of both ideas. First of all, in embracing everything God has given us. Are these lights off? Is it dark back there? No, maybe not. Uh, but first of all, we must embrace what He has given us. And then we must take very seriously the discipline of following Him. And we're going to see why in just a moment. But let's, let's read these two, two verses. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Okay, there are lots of prepositions in there, gentlemen, and uh, when I see prepositions, uh, I'm thinking, how is all this connected? And you have so many great concepts in there, but the question is, how are they all tied together, and why is Peter just kind of flooding these out at us uh, all at one time? We're going to see that in just a moment. But I want us to begin by looking at this. You have this handout that has a couple of charts on it. We're going to be filling in a few blanks. Let's look at this first chart. I'll show you what I'm... What I'm looking at, is called Our Predicament, and uh, what we're trying to show here is what it is Peter is showing that God has solved. So let's start with the background to Peter's message in Second Peter, and that is Our Predicament. You have God represented by that triangle, Father, Spirit, Son, and you have two kinds of people. You have the corrupt man and the godly man. The corrupt man is the one who is not only morally corrupt, but he is actually even physically corrupt. That is, we're falling apart. If you haven't looked in the mirror lately, just take a look. You're falling apart. That is, your body's corrupt. That's what corrupt means, is that it dissolves. It it, uh, dissipates. And uh, we are also morally corrupt. We know that as well. But there's corrupt man. He's corrupt in his morals. And he's corrupt in terms of his own being. He's falling apart. And Primarily because he's under the judgment of God. So there, there are three significant things we know about corruption. It more, it's morally depraved. It's falling apart and it's under God's judgment. Then you have the, the godly man. Uh, he is the man who is alive. He's the man who's seeking to put God's character into practice in his own life. Uh, He's a man who's not going to pass away. Yes, his outer nature is wasting away, but that outer nature even is going to be resurrected one day. And the corrupt will become incorruptible, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, correct? The resurrection is all about taking the corrupt and making it incorruptible. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that when we die as believers in Christ, we're like a seed put into the ground. And the seed is corruptible, but it gives forth a harvest, a plant. And the same with ourselves. Our bodies are like seeds. They're corruptible. They fall apart. They, they go into ground and dissolve. But out of that, at the resurrection, comes a harvest of a resurrected body. So the godly person, in all those three ways, including the judgment of God, he now has the favor of God. Those are two different kinds of people. Now the big question is, how can a corrupt man become a godly man? That's the big question. And you want to maybe... Put that in there. How can a corrupt man become a godly man? I was asked by one of you this past week, why is it I'm such a mess? Why can't I get any consistency in my life? Why is this not working for me? And that's exactly what Peter is going to address. And there are two aspects to it. First of all, there is the contemplation of the mind to realize and embrace what God has done for us. And you can't take step one. You can't do squat until you have embraced and received the saving work of God and you continue to receive it and contemplate it. We're going to talk about that today. Next Thursday, we're going to talk about the discipline of leading a godly life in terms of getting your time, your energy your resources, and your heart under discipline. And this is very hard work. We're going to get our minds under discipline today. And then next week we're going to talk about our time, our energy, our resources, and our heart, getting them all under discipline. And if you'll just leave your finger in First Peter and turn back with me for just a moment to First Timothy. First Timothy 4, and this would be page 1957. And I want you to notice something about this discipline. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says to his son Timothy and the Lord, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. And we'll talk about godless myths and old wives' tales in just a moment. Because we do have something to do with them still today. Uh, At this point, you can put your rabbit foot away. Uh, he, He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Alright, so now we're talking about training. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. But he says in verse 7, train yourselves. And he says in other places, he says about himself in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body. I buffet my body. I, I, I do war against my own body, just like an athlete does. And I don't know you all, this all this talk about Tiger Woods these, these past days. This guy's an amazing athlete. And everybody wants to know what's the secret to Tiger Woods. Well, he has these tremendous concentrative powers. And he's a natural athlete. And uh, he, he's just got what it takes. But everybody says, when everybody else goes home, after being on the putting green, there's Tiger Woods out there in the dark, you know, with a flashlight. You're still putting, chipping. Uh, he's practicing all the time. And, of course, he's learned not to play in every tournament. Why? So he can go back. These are strategic retreats. He can get his mind and his body in gear. This guy's lifting weights beyond what all the other golfers are are doing. He's in training all the time. Why? He wants to be a champ. And guess what? He is. Well, if you think that being like Jesus Christ is going to take less training than being a professional golfer, you've got another thought coming. This is tough. Jesus is the greatest. This is going to take training. And this is put in the Scriptures all the way through. Paul uses a military analogy often. He talks about fighting a battle. He talks about an athletic model. This is tough stuff. And so don't think it's going to be easy. And so if you get discouraged because you're not having success with the little effort that you're putting in, well, guess what? Yeah, of course you're not going to be winning the Masters you know, with a weekend golfer. It's not going to happen. And the same thing with godliness. It's, it draws us into a full effort. I told our folks last night talking about discipleship. You know, We talked about several principles of discipleship. And one of them I said is, unless this is the number one thing in your life, it's not going to work for you. Discipleship doesn't work as the number two thing in your life. It doesn't. And, and of course, you can understand why. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Why? And if you don't know him as number one, you just don't know him. You don't have a relationship with number one unless he's number one in your life. So this is not going to work for you unless it's the number one thing in your life. You're always going to be frustrated. Now, there's always a level of frustration for Billy Graham. But not the level of frustration that many of us would describe. Because Billy Graham is putting his heart into this. If you, if people who describe Billy Graham and know him personally, they'll say this. Above all things, he's a man of prayer. Above all things, out, you know, inside, behind closed doors, he's more passionate than he is outside preaching the gospel. So what you see in preaching the gospel is the tip of the iceberg. What you've got is a life indoors, a life in private. And unless life is that way, it's just not going to work. So as we go into this week and next week, this week ta- talking about the things we contemplate, the things we believe, the things we keep rolling over in the mind, the things that frame our lives up, and then next week about the discipline of actually following him in, in external life, you know, with our bodies, our hearts, our time, and, and so forth. Let's just realize this, this, is, this is tough stuff. But this text says he gives us all we need for life and godliness, including the motivation and the passion to do it. So let's just keep resting on him. When you see a big task and you see a little man who's supposed to do it, me, I look up to a real big God. That's my only hope. So I see a huge task, godly life. see a little man, Sandy, have a great big God. So, God, you're going to have to solve this. This little man is not up to that huge task. So you, God, are going to have to do something about it. Augustine said, command what thou wilt, but grant what thou commandest. So God command anything you want out of me. You can call me to be perfect, but just give it to me. So that's how we're coming to him today. We're going to look at this big task. We're going to enter into it. And all the while, we're going to enter into it knowing that we're, this is hopeless unless he's giving us the resources as we walk into it. OK, well, let's begin to look then. At, we see here God's predicament. We see the problem. How are we going to go from being a corrupt man to a godly man? And this is exactly what Peter's going to address. Because he's going to show us the other teaching of these false teachers described in chapters 2 and 3 is not working. And the gospel works. So he's going to condemn the teaching that's not working for these folks. And he's going to show them right here that God's way is the only way to do it. Alright, first of all, in verse 3a, we see that God has given us of himself. God has given us of himself. It is by His power that this is done. Now His could be God. It could be Christ. Most scholars suggest that when the pronouns are being used here that we're talking about the third person pronouns have to do with Christ. But they are not sure and it in one sense doesn't ultimately matter. It is divine power. It is by His power. His divine power has given us what we need. Now, you'll see this idea of power in John 10:28, when when Jesus speaks of our being in His hands. And His hands are powerful. And then He says we're in the Father's hands, and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. So this is God's keeping power and His saving power. This is divine power that's got a hold of us. So if you feel like a teeny little man, a teeny little corrupt man trying to be a godly man, don't worry about it. we got a huge God with big hands and nobody can snatch his people out of their hands. So this is all by his power. And even when we get to the part that, quote, we're supposed to do, what we find out is he's empowering that too. He is working through us to accomplish his will. We'll see that next week. But it's all by his power. Secondly, notice he gives us all we need. Everything we need for life and godliness. Now, this is so important. Because we find that often when we get frustrated with our own spiritual lives, we begin looking for things to add to what we're doing to help us out just a little bit. And uh, we'll see here that what Peter is saying is, look, you want to go from corruption to life? from falling apart to eternal life? You want to go from moral degradation to godliness? God has given you all you need. And so as the title of our talk today says, stop looking around. Look to God. Here's your one answer. He's got it. And what are some of the things that we do? Well, you know, you have the Eastern influences. You know, a lot of you may be involved in yoga or your wives involved in yoga. And as far as physical exercise goes, Yoga is good physical exercise. I encourage you to do it. But with yoga, there's an entire religious framework. And if you buy into the religious framework and you're trying to learn how to contemplate or meditate as an Eastern meditator, you're not only adding, you're subtracting. You're adding a practice that God doesn't recommend for godliness and you're subtracting Christian meditation. You know, Christians meditate too. One reason people get into Eastern practices as Christians is because they've forgotten the heritage of the Christian church and the Bible itself. We meditate on His law day and night, says the psalmist. Meditate on what? His Word. Meditate on Christ. Meditate on God, on His great works for us. And we roll these things over in our mind. What does the Eastern mind do? It tries to eliminate things out of the mind. Why? Why? Because they're external to you and the deity is to be found within you. So you eliminate all external influences, including your own body. So you're meditating to empty your mind. That's the opposite of Christian meditation. Christian meditation fills the mind with the being of God and His revealed Word. And so when you try to add Eastern practices, you're actually subtracting what you need for life and godliness. This is the problem with all substitutions. Uh, you can find it also in in, in good things. Uh, and like I say, yoga has a good aspect to it as far as physical exercise goes. You could take the 12-step procedures of AA. A good thing. Some of you have been greatly benefited by those 12 steps. And those 12 steps, as you know, are largely just lifted right out of the Bible. But when you think that the 12 steps is your salvation, you have substituted the biblical way of leading a, an everlasting godly life with, a although derived from the Scriptures, a man-made process. And so now the higher power, in some step or another, I guess step number one maybe, the higher, higher power becomes a substitute for the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very, very bad substitute. There is no higher power except for God Himself, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the higher power. So if you're trained and you take it hook, line, and sinker, you're trained in a good process like that, sometimes you begin to say, well, it doesn't matter what your higher power is, just get one. And I've heard many Christian men in AA say such things. That's fine for AA. AA. It is not fine for you if you're following Christ and want to live a godly life. It's a very poor substitute for the living God. You see how subtle these things can be. You take something good, like a 12-step process. You take something good, like an exercise program, and pretty soon you're wrapping up your salvation into these things. And you've traded in the glory of the immortal God for images of Him. Bad images. And the same can be true in in many other things. You You can even take a good thing, like... Psychological therapy. That's a good thing. And some more of you need to get involved in that. (laughs) It really is a good thing. But then on the other hand, I've had a person come back after their trip to Bermuda. And uh, that's not Bermuda. That's Bermuda. You know, a therapy place out out in the West. And they come back and say, you know, I've been saved. Well, great. Did you meet Jesus Christ? No. I came to understand myself. I, literally, someone's told me that. They got saved. They found their salvation. Well, what they did was they traded in what Peter's going to say in Second Peter for therapy. So that's taking something that's good. It's, it's given to us as a gift from God. It's like wine. Wine is good. Paul says to Timothy, hey, you've got an upset stomach, drink a glass of wine before you go to bed. Fine. But then when you have three glasses and you're, you know, you're out of it, some of you take six, you get out of it. Now, you've, you've traded in sobriety for drunkenness. A bad trade. So, you've taken something that was good, a gift from God, and you've misused it. And people will do that with good things. I knew a guy early on in my Christian life who was so excited about his, how his mind was working. He said, Oh, that's great. Has, has Jesus helped you? No, silver mind control. Well, I think there are some wonderful mind control techniques. But when you trade that in for the ultimate mind control that Jesus Christ gives you, you have made a bad trade. Here's what the point is. God has given us by His sovereign power everything we would need, everything we do need for life, eternal life, and godliness. Stop looking around and figure this out. How are you going to attach yourself to Him? And let's stop blaming Him. And let's stop blaming the weakness of his salvation program, that something's missing there, and let's get the focus on where the problem is. It's in the predicament. Corrupt man. Let's get it focused there. Because as you know, from good to great, you're not going to be a great corporation unless you can face the brutal facts. And you're not going to live a godly life unless you can face the brutal facts. And the problem is not with my God. And the problem is not with his salvation. The problem is with you. So let's try to figure out what it is. And Second Peter will help us with this. Let's get the diagnosis, the brutal facts, right out of the Scriptures. And then let's go to working on the brutal facts with all that we need to solve the brutal facts. So let's get real focused and look up and not around. He gives us all we need. Now, what are these things that we need? Well, let's get into that. C, he says, through our knowledge of Him. Now, this idea of knowledge is a key idea in Second Peter. You find it not only here, but in verse 2 and verse 8. You find it twice in chapter 2. You find it in, at the very end of the, of the letter in chapter three, eighteen. Because this is a key idea that he's addressing with this false teaching. The false teaching is professing to give you a new way of knowledge. Silver mind control. And Peter is saying, let me tell you about knowledge. That God has given us everything we need through the knowledge of Him. That's the knowledge you need. And when you get the knowledge of Him, you have everything you need for life and godliness. So stop looking around. Stay focused on Him. The knowledge of Him is everything. You pick this up and, for example, I've got this verse listed here, Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the God of steadfast love and righteousness. In all these things I delight, says the Lord. So come to know Him and boast about that. That is your pride and joy. Not your estate, not your house, not your prestige, not your position, not your trophy wife, not your educated children. Your boast is in the knowledge of God. Know Him. And Jesus says in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, God, grant them the world life. And what is life? That they may know you, the eternal God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is life, to know Him. And you know in the Scriptures that the word know means to have intimate relations. That can mean an intellectual thing as well. But a man knows his wife, for example, in the Old Testament. So here he's saying we have intimate relationships with God. We all have a relationship with Him. That's, if it's in Christ, it's intimate. We have this, this intimate knowledge of God. And that is, through, that is the means by which we have everything that we need. Paul says in Philippians 3, this text I've mentioned here, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to be close with Him. I want to be buddies with Him. I want to be best friends with Him. I want to be intimate with Him. I want to know Christ, he says, and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing and sufferings. But he says, I consider everything else as trash. He uses the word crap. You thought that was just a slang word. No, Paul uses it. He says, I consider everything dung for the sake of knowing Christ my Savior. For the sake of knowing Him. This is the treasure above all treasures. Now, once again, until you treasure Him this way, you're not going to really know Him because that's what He is. He is a treasure above all treasures. And the only reason you don't treasure Him is you don't know how much a treasure He is. And so it's only when you see Him as a treasure that you're going to begin to know Him through which you'll have all you need for life and godliness. So you see how this is all coming from your heart and your mind. It's the Spirit, it's the interior man. And that's the beginning of all this, is to know Him. And therefore, we will have what we need. Now, let's take a moment to begin to look at the solution. And this will be our kind of first deposit on this. Take this, this chart again, and let's start to fill in a few things. And look here. You'll see that from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit... God works His power to move us from being corrupt man to godly man through the knowledge of God. So you can, you can fill those things in. The knowledge of God will be the, the uh, top line of those, where those three lines are in the box. The two other things coming. But you can see what we're saying so far. If you want to know how a corrupt man becomes a godly man, well let's just start with this. It's going to be by God's almighty power. He's going to assert all. Think about the power that created this universe with all this complexity and its order, its beauty and majesty, its vastness. And think about the power it takes to sustain this universe in all of its order and vastness. It's that power that's being asserted upon you. Have you contemplated this? Have you looked at Genesis 1 and said, my stars, look at that. What kind of God must He be to create that? And then you said, my stars, that power is the power that's being exerted upon me and my soul to take me from being corrupt to being godly. This is really something. So you see what kind of asset you're dealing with here. This is immense. So it's His power working through us, through the knowledge of God, to move us to the godly category. And that's the first thing we want to pick up then on this First half of verse 3, that God has given us of Himself to move us from one to the other. So, I'm telling you folks, this is not going to fail. Because God is putting His own reputation on it. He's using His own power. And we may as well not have a creation as to have this fail. You're going to have the same success rate with God taking His people from corrupt to incorrupt as you have with nothing becoming something in creation. You'll have the same success rate because of the same God with the same power. Okay, secondly, let's look at the second half of verse 3, the first half of verse 4. And we'll see that not only has God given us of Himself, but God has called us to Himself. There's a calling here. Now, when we think of the word calling, you know, we just think of somebody calling out, Sandy, come to lunch. I just got called by my wife to come to lunch. And I can decide whether to come or not to come. I can keep you know, mowing the grass or I can go in and have lunch. If I'm a wise man, I'll turn the mower off. But I have a choice, don't I? And we think of calling being that way. You're given a calling even if the president calls you. Command performance. Come to the White House. You still have a choice. But that's not the way the Bible uses it in its most fundamental sense and in this sense right here. The way the Bible uses it is Sandy, come to lunch and then my wife gets inside of my body and walks my little body back into the into the. Uh, kitchen that's impossible she can't do that it's not impossible with god that's exactly what he does when he calls you he actually changes your heart he takes no chances with you and he shouldn't trust you should he if he gave you an outward call right into your ear with the old heart of the corrupt man are you coming not at all you have another agenda called the Sandy Wilson agenda, or the Robert Taylor agenda, or the Brian Nern agenda. We all have our own little agendas. And so we're going we're gonna to live life according to our agenda, not his. That's the way that we are in our corrupt nature. Now, we may fake it, and lots of people fake it, image manage, but from the heart, we'll never give him our heart because we have a corrupt heart. So in calling, you not only get the invitation in your ear, you're not only called to do something, but you're actually Your heart is actually turned from a corrupt heart to an obedient heart. Now, let's look at an example. Uh, Leave your finger there. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 28, that very well-known verse. And he says that, and we know this is page 1824, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. So those who are called are those who love Him. See the parallel there? Then look at verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You see here how the same group that is glorified is the group that was predestined from the beginning. You see that? The first word is predestined, the last word is glorified. So there's no surprise on God's part. He gets the ones he wants. He always does. And he should. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. He's rescuing people, and He's selected those He will rescue. So you see the big 30,000-foot level here. Those who end up in the end glorified are the ones He predestined from all eternity. But you you would then, of course, see the logic. Everything in between is also just as specific as glorification and predestination. It's the same group of people. So when He calls them, it is more than just giving an invitation. He gives an invitation to the entire world. But the world doesn't end up glorified. So he's saying here clearly, it's those he predestined he also called. So obviously calling means more than just an invitation. It's, it's what we call effectual calling, effective calling. It actually works. It goes in the ear and it works because it changes the heart. And you can see the same scope of the group here when he says those who have been called have been justified. So this is all one group of people from eternity to eternity working through time. And now there are other cases. You can look in chapter 9, for example, when he speaks of Rebecca's children and he says in verse 11, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So you see how... He establishes God's election by having uh, Jacob be the one before He he was chosen, before He'd done anything good or bad. And it's by Him who calls. It's not by works. So calling is the opposite of works, which means calling is to change our nature apart from anything good or bad we had done. God just simply has elected us, just like He did Jacob, he calls us right out of the womb to be His own. And He does that through changing our own hearts so that calling and the new birth are very closely related. To be a called person is to be a born-again person. And that birth comes from above. It comes from God. It comes by His initiative. So this is what it means to be called. Now, why does He do this? There's got to be some reason, hasn't there? Why did He call you? And not some person that lives two houses down. Wasn't there something in you that at least gave God a hint that you'd make a fairly decent citizen of heaven? Wasn't there something in you that God could kind of see, you know what, if if he gets the gospel invitation, I think he'll respond. I'll be sure he gets it. Wasn't there something in you, at least some shred of a reason, why God loved you? The answer is no. It's a complete, baffling mystery. In fact, the Bible seems to suggest that the ones God has called are a little worse than the ones He didn't. I mean, Jacob and Esau, of course, being the classic case. Esau was a man's man. He worked for his food. Jacob was a mama's boy. Hung around the house. You know, was deceitful. Esau was straight up, right in your face. I like Esau. I don't like Jacob too much. And you know what? Paul said the same thing about the New Testament church. Uh, Many noble among you. Many scholars here. Many really smart, good-looking people. Nope. God's chosen the things that were weak to confound the strong. That's basically what He's done. So that no flesh may boast in the presence of God. That's His whole point. So election or calling has nothing to do with you. And if it has anything to do with you, it's the irony of it all. So what is the reason for this? It's all in God Himself. Now, gentlemen, this is tremendously encouraging. Here's why. If he did notice some shred of a reason why you are a little bit more cool than everybody else, a little bit better looking, a little smarter, morally superior, if that were part of the reason why he chose you, then let me tell you what, I know you well enough, you're going to blow it before the day's out. And then you're going to be thinking, Well, he doesn't love me anymore. And so many of your dads and your mothers loved you when you were good and didn't love you when you're bad. And you developed a whole paradigm for living that said, I'm lovable when I'm good and I'm not lovable when I'm not. I'm lovable when I'm the life of the party and I'm not lovable when I'm quiet. I'm lovable when I'm making a lot of money, and I'm not lovable when I'm not. I'm lovable when I have a fancy car and everybody gives me a good title. I'm not lovable when I... you you learned that. We all did, and the Bible puts a big X on it. it. Says no, has nothing to do with you. The love that you are receiving is the love of God, and the love of God has nothing to do with you but the sin that made it necessary. The love from God is completely coming from Him, and that ought to be very encouraging because He doesn't change. He's not fickle like you. And some of you are really fickle. He is not. And therefore, if you want to know why you are who you are, and if you want to know who I am, I'm rooted in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and he doesn't change. And he loves me. And you see here how the text puts it. It's the cause of his character. It's by his own glory and goodness. You can look at the text in Titus sometime. You'll see that our whole salvation has come out of the goodness and kindness of God. When the goodness and kindness of God appears, he says. It's the goodness of God. It's the character of God from which we are saved. Therefore, our salvation is really about Him. And the irony of us guys being the saved ones, the humor of all that, is to glorify Him all the more that He saves the weak. The weak. He saves the morally inferior. He saves men like us. And it exalts His saving name. It exalts the grace by which we are saved. His goodness. His character. And Peter uses two words here. His own glory and goodness. And glory just means His splendor, His majesty, His radiance. It's kind of like the eons that emanate from God Himself. Just the brilliance of the light. It's just, or the word in Hebrew, kavod, just means weight. It's, it's gravity, the gravity of God. So the, the radiance, the splendor, the weight of God in His goodness. Now the word used for goodness here is not the normal word for goodness. It's kind of a pagan word. And it's one reason that some scholars think that Peter might not have written this letter, as we discussed last time because they see little words like this, or well, when he says participate in the divine nature, that's also kind of a pagan category. It's an unusual category for the Bible. And this, this one is too. Arete is the word that's being used here. And it's, it's a typical pagan word for virtue. So it's not... Goodness is almost a technical word for one of God's attributes. In Hebrew, tov. You know, uh, uh, give thanks for the Lord is good. His name endures forever. Tov. And in the Old Testament, God alone is Tov. And when He created, He looked and said, Behold, it is good. In sixth day, it is very good. Tov. And then we're told that God is good. And then when Joseph is thrown into the well and sold off to the Midianites, he says, You intended it for evil, but God intended it for Tov, for good. So Tov is a word that belongs to God alone in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament... And you remember the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher. And he says, Time out just now." Why do you call me Tove? Why do you call me? And of course, it was in Greek, Agatha. Why do you call me good? Well, actually, it was in Aramaic. Uh, we don't have that in the text. But he says, Why do you call me good? No one is Tov but God alone. Remember how Jesus says that? Now, Jesus wasn't denying his own deity. He was just denying the flippancy which with, with which this guy was using the word good. So God alone is good, and that's the reason that when you have the two examples in the Old Test in the New Testament of good good men. One is Barnabas, Acts eleven, and the other is Joseph of Arimathea. The only two men in the Bible that are called good. There's one sort of accidental case in the Old Testament. But men aren't called good by and large, because God alone is good. Uh, But when you have it, it's quite a trait, and you see the key to it. We're told of Barnabas he was full of the Spirit. So how do you become a good man? Only one way. You have to have the good God come inside of you because you're not going to be in goodness coming out of you because God alone is Tove. So you ask God to come into your life and there will be an increasing goodness in your life by His power emanating through you. Now this is a different word. It includes good, but it really just means moral excellence. It's kind of a, 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 it's a philosophical word. And it's a good word. As a matter of fact, so those scholars who suggest that Peter couldn't have written this because he uses concepts like that, Peter also used it in 1 Peter. 1 Peter two nine, where he says, We declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We declare the moral excellence of Him. Arete. We declare the moral excellence of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So this is moral excellence. Now, look what's being said. Peter is saying that He has called us by his own moral excellence. You say, how could that be when I'm so immoral? What is excellent, morally excellent about calling a person like me to be your friend? Well, here's what's excellent about it. Is that God is gracious. Try that on for size. You want to know how gracious he is? He called a sinner like you who deserve to be under the judgment of God. That's how gracious He is, and that happens to be a moral virtue, and He's excellent in it. So what Peter is saying is, you have all you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called you to Himself through His own moral excellence. It is glorious. Not through anything in you. So don't worry about what you were. It really doesn't matter what you were. What matters is who He is. So study Him. Look up. Stop looking around. Stop looking in. Look up. At his moral excellence. So, and notice that through these, and I would, this, this is debated, but I think through these, the, the antecedent to these is probably glory and goodness. Through these virtues, I think we could say. He has given us his very great and precious promises. He has called us to himself with amazing promises. So, he has called us to himself out of his own moral excellence. Changing our hearts, that's what calling means, and putting into our heads and hearts these very great and wondrous, precious promises. Now, why has He done that? You know, He could have saved us. He could be taking us on to glory and not tell us a thing about it. He could just say, trust me. Don't you sense I'm changing your heart? Don't you sense you have a different appetite? Don't you sense i put you in the church? I'm giving you means of grace, and we're going along on this journey. Why do you need to know where we're going? Do you not trust me? Can't you just trust me? No? Here's, here's why. Uh, and I'll attribute this to Coach Tony Dungy. Some of you may have heard him this week. But at lunch this week, he said there are two things you want to ask of leaders. Number one, where are you going? And number two, why should I follow you? Well, look at God. He tells you where you're going. And He gives you His character. That's what you need to have a leader. God's your leader. So He tells you where He's going. And that's what the promises are all about. Let me tell you where the world is going. Let me tell you how it's coming to an end. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be salvation for those who put their trust in Me. I'm going to tell you this all ahead of time. And I'm going to tell you just enough about heaven that you'll be encouraged. And not too much about heaven that you'll commit suicide. So I'll give you just what you need for life and godliness. If I told you too much about the future, you'd be checking out of here. And that's not what I want you to do. So he gives us, it's like the perfect balance in this universe. If you've studied the galaxies and how how delicate that balance is, it's just absolutely amazing. We're just on the razor's edge of so many types of balances that keep this universe in order. So is the balance of what God has given us for our life and salvation. It's perfectly balanced. And so he's giving us these promises because we need to know directionally where are we going. And you'll see what these promises are. If you'll turn over to chapter 2, you can see that he takes on those who are saying these promises are not important. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Talking about these false teachers in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Like, oh, everybody when they die, they just become a little angel and fly around and play a harp. That's just a myth, it's a story. They make up stories. And their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And you'll find that he speaks of their denying the second coming of Christ in chapter 2. They're denying the promises. They're denying judgment. They're denying the promise that history is headed toward a final, ultimate judgment of God. And so they're undermining life and godliness so that men who are under their teaching get more and more corrupt But if you come under the teaching of Christ with his promises to you, it will be redemptive. And I put here, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's turn there for just a moment. Leave your finger in 2 Peter and go over to 2 Corinthians. This would be page 1880. And here you have promises given to us. For example, in chapter 6, verse 16 What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, look at this promise, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And look at this, I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now look at all those promises. He's promised that he will live with us. He will walk among us. He will be our father. We will be his sons. He will receive us in the end. And then see what Paul says. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, what? Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So the promises lead to a holy life. And you've got to have the promises, and you've got to understand exactly what they were. And that's the reason that when people deny the second coming, deny the ultimate judgment of God, deny the promise of heaven, or screw it all up and distort it, they're taking away from us what we need for life and godliness. All right, so God has called us to Himself because of His character with amazing promises. Now let's let's revert again to the chart, God's solution, and look here what we're adding We're adding the promises of God under the knowledge of God. We're adding the word His calling. So God exercises His power into us. He calls us out of corruption. Not only verbally, but materially He calls us. He changes our hearts and He does it within the knowledge of God and specifically through the promises of God that inspire us. All right, we've got a few more minutes. Let's keep plugging ahead. In the second half of verse 4, we see not only has God given us of Himself and called us to Himself, He has joined us to Himself. Now, this gentleman is the most remarkable of all. And as I've already said to you, when he says that through them and that, that them, the antecedent to them appears to be the promises of God, you may participate in the divine nature. We are looking at a very rare description. How can you say we participate in the divine nature? Well, first of all, notice that he does not say we have a divine nature. He says we participate. Or the word there is for fellowship. We fellowship with. Or we commune in the divine nature. There's a commingling of the divine nature with our human nature. We participate in it. He lives in us. And some of these texts I've written here, Describe this, and perhaps the most graphic one is John fifteen five, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. There you have it. If he's the vine, the same sap, the same life-giving resources that come through him, his, his substance goes into the branch, goes into us. We have his substance. Now this, is, this is wild. This is better than any Eastern mysticism. which says, if you look in yourself long enough, you'll find God. We're saying, no, not in the old nature. But by being born again, you do have the divine nature in you. And so you're not looking into your old nature to find God. You're You're looking upwards to find God, but He lives in you. And so you do come to know Him immediately. He does lead you by His Spirit. He is intimately connected with you. The knowledge of God is not to be surpassed. By any false religion in the world. This is the most intimate knowledge, the most mystical experience that any man could possibly have is in Christ because He has given us all we need for life and godliness, and there's nothing to be added from anywhere in the entire universe. So we have it in Christ. So when you have your problems, you're wondering, how can I get my head straight? How can I get my life framed up? How can I live a godly life? Look up, gentlemen. Don't look in, don't look around, look up and look in and through Christ and you will find all you need. He has joined us to himself. This is a remarkable statement. We don't have time to deal with it in depth today. Let's move on. Secondly, we escape corruption. So we participate in the divine nature and because of that, we are escaping corruption. Remember what we said corruption is. It's moral depravity, but it's also dissolution, falling apart, wasting away. That's corruption. We're escaping that. In fact, the the verb here is not indicative. It's actually a participle. Having escaped corruption. I think the NIV just barely missed it there. In fact, this is something that's already happened to us, and it's going to happen in Toto later. We've already escaped the corrupting, dissolving influences of the old order. Now, the problem is that corruption is endemic to this world, number one. So he says we escape the corruption in the world. The world is corrupting. It's falling apart. It's dissolving. It's dissipating right before our eyes. Everything is winding down. And it's winding down for a reason. It's under the judgment of God. And we live in that world. And the most amazing thing about salvation is that God takes an unholy man in an unholy world and makes him holy and keeps him holy in it. That's an amazing thing. So that you have incorruptible men living in a corrupt world. It's a difficult task to keep your head and keep your heart and keep your body holy in an unholy world. But that's exactly what's going on. And you see here that he mentions very helpfully, that it is caused by evil desires. The reason for the corruption of this world is that the world desires corrupt things. And you can see in James chapter 1 that when temptation links up with the allurements of this world, we have the conception. You have a marriage of a temptation and a desire in your heart with the allurement of the world, boom, the baby that's born is sin. That's the way James describes it. That's what happens. We have our own flesh being allured by the world with the extra little help from the devil, and we have sin. But what has happened in God's power among us is that we have been called out of that. Now let's look one more time go back to our chart and fill in the blanks. And you can see that not only do we have the knowledge of God, the promises of God, but we have a participation in the divine nature, and those are all we need. And that moves us toward the likeness of His Son. You see that third arrow? That moves us toward the Son so that we are predestined, as Romans 8 said, to the likeness and conformity of His Son. We have His nature now. And we're being conformed to that. So that we participate in the divine nature Our nature has also been taken up into the Trinity. When Jesus Christ died and rose with a resurrected body, He ascended and went back to the throne of God with our flesh on Him. He didn't have that flesh before. He has taken human nature into the communion of the Trinity. Gentlemen, the reason for this is He's preparing a way for our human nature to be in intimate communion with the triune God. This is how great our salvation is. And God's not going to screw this up. And not because He thinks you're so great, but because He knows He's great. And He's put His name on it. And you and I are going to continue to struggle. We're going to continue to ask the questions. How do I make this work for me? And we're going to continue to come back to verses like 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 and say, Head, let's get you straight first. And then we'll talk about our feet next week. With this head, how do you now put feet on your discipleship so that you really are becoming in practice more and more like Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, thank you for your salvation, your solution to our predicament. We pray that you'll help us to learn to access the immense power of Almighty God in our salvation, that we may please you in the way that we think and speak and live Please forgive us again this day for our sins and give us the assurance that they are washed away from us. We are not condemned. We are not under your disfavor, but under your favor and in the favor of your light and salvation. O oh Lord, may we walk today freely, boldly as men of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.